The text that we will be in is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. We're beginning a, a new uh, thematic series. Uh, it's just a few, uh, about five weeks on uh, who, who we are as a, a church. Uh, the session asked uh, when we finished Luke to maybe revisit this. We've not gone and revisited this uh, theme uh, in several years and with many new folks, a part of our congregation, uh, to have an idea of who we are as a congregation uh, within the larger body of Christ, of course. So we'll be using our text this morning will be Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 7. Before we come to our text, uh, who are we as a church? What has Jesus built here in this place with this community of believers that we call Covenant Community Church? Now, that may seem like a bit of a strange or weird question for some of you. Uh, but some of you might answer that question by saying that we're a Christian church. Or maybe you might say we're a Bible-believing or teaching church. Some of you might uh, answer that question by saying that we're a, a smallish-sized church. Maybe you'd say we're a growing church. Others might say you might answer that question by saying that we're a PCA church. Or maybe we're a Reformed church. Or maybe a Presbyterian church. I think all those things are true about who we are. But there's many different ways that you can answer that question. So we want to begin this Sunday and then the Sundays to come uh, in a series titled, Who Are We? to look more fully and to answer this question. And today is kind of going to be a very high-level overview of kind of the foundational elements to what make us kind of uniquely who we are as a church. And then we will look at some of the more, even more unique elements in the weeks to come. So before we get to that this morning, let's read together from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Ephesus. And he begins this chapter, I therefore, that means Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one faith, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Your word made flesh in Jesus Christ. And the word that we, as the word that we come to this day. Lord, we pray that you'd give us eyes and ears to see and to hear. Lord, may we be not only transformed, but conformed to your very word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as Christians, and more specifically brothers and sisters living in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, we need to periodically ask this question, who are we as the church of Jesus Christ? And the reason that we need to ask this question periodically is because we often make lesser markers the more important markers. We often make the lesser markers the most important markers. We often go to some of the least important things first and make conclusions about a church or even individuals based on those markers. Instead, we need to look at ourselves and others from the correct perspective. What defines us is important because we clearly need things that define us, but more importantly, what unifies us? What is the unity that we have in Christ. And this passage of scripture, I guess I'm going to use as a broad overview just to kind of give us a foundation. And then the different aspects will be pulled out as we go through this series using other texts of scripture. But we often make lesser markers more important markers. And this morning, I'd like us to see that there are six markers. Now, I know some of you are like, holy cow, a six point sermon? You got to be kidding, John. Don't worry, they, most of them will be fairly, fairly to the point and short. But there are six markers that we, uh, that we see in our text and that they first unify us, but they also define us as a church. And we understand these six markers and how they build on one another. It should help us understand how we can minister in unity with each other, with other Christians from outside our particular denomination or tradition, but also how we can welcome those into our fellowship that may not agree 100% with everything that we believe. And these six markers that I want us to look at are first that we are Christian, we're orthodox, we're evangelical, we're missional, we're reformed, and we're Presbyterian. First, we're Christian. Verses three and four. Paul writes, uh, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Paul reminds us three times in our text that we are first and foremost called, <laughs> right? We are called by God. We are called by God and that calling is into Christ and into his people, the church, right? We are Christian because we have been called by God, called into Christ and his people, the church. We are united by the spirit and the bond of peace into one body. Paul uses that image over and over again in his epistles. That we are one body. There is one hope, and that hope is in the salvation of Jesus Christ, and so we are first and foremost Christian. That is our foundational identity. That is our foundational aspect of who we are as a church. But we are also orthodox. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. And this is what the New Testament church believed, what they preached what they lived. And the true church has continued to believe, preach, 
and live this since the early church. And this faith is summarized in the ancient creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And those of you who were in the adult Sunday school class that Chuck taught, it was in those aspects of the early church, pulling together and understanding and wrestling with what Scripture taught and meant and what Jesus himself had spoken. And this is one of the reasons that we include a profession of faith every week in our liturgy, to remind us of what it is that the orthodox faith believes, not the orthodox church necessarily, but the orthodox faith, what has been passed down by the apostles generation after generation after generation. And we use this in our liturgy. And most often we use the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed to remind us what it is that we believe. Paul is clear in our text that our orthodox faith is Trinitarian, right? We, we confess that in the Apostles' Creed this morning. We confess that in the Nicene Creed. We profess that, that we believe that our faith is Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have in our text Paul referring to our Lord And he names our Lord in the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, as Christ, and Spirit. And this is an area where, as we said, there is is unity, but then there are places where we begin to find definition, where we define ourselves and there begins separation. And this is where many of well-known cults separate from Christianity the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they are not Trinitarian in their understanding of God, as well as some other things. But that is a foundational thing about why they are separate in terms of our understanding of Christians. But it also is for others that we might at first glance look at as Christians, like those who believe in a oneness theology, right? Who believe that there is one God but that belief is that one, our one God manifests himself in different ways, not that he is distinct in persons, and yet one. This is the ancient heresy of modalism. And so we understand that as we are Christians, we are also orthodox. And in our text, we see clearly that part of that orthodox faith is believing in the, Trini- in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are also evangelical in verse 1. Now, that word can, uh, in our day and age, be used in a, very, in a lot of various ways. Some good, some not so good. But in its classic sense, the word evangelical is, this, is the understanding that we believe in evangelism, in the in the and the good news of Jesus Christ, that we proclaim that as the way, the truth, and as he's the way, the truth, and the life. And where where you see that in our text is in in verse 1, where Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He's a prisoner, not because he was a revolutionary, 
but because he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. He was proclaiming the, uh, the euangelion, the, the, the good news of the gospel, where we get evangelism, evangelical from. He's proclaiming this good news of Jesus Christ. And like Paul, we believe that the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be heard by all people. It is not just for a certain culture. It is not just for a certain group of people. It is for all people. We're reminded that it is for the Japanese. It is for everyone all over the world. Remembering Jesus' words in Matthew 28, that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we take Jesus' words seriously, that it is our call to tell others about the life-changing news of Jesus Christ. Right, it is our calling to be evangelistic, to be evangelical in our understanding of what it means to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is even outlined in our denomination's, quote, tagline, faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the great commission of Jesus Christ. So we've seen that we're a Christian. We are... Um, we are orthodox, we are evangelical, but we are also missional. Verses one through two, Paul goes on, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Missional builds on and off of evangelical. It's also known by the term missio dei, the mission of God. And while this is sometimes seen in the church as a trendy buzzword and therefore not something that the church should be engaged in, it might be a somewhat trendy buzzword. I'm not sure how trendy it is anymore. I mean, this is like maybe 20 years ago it was trendy. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be missional or on God's mission. Right, remember in Luke 24, you remember we just finished Luke 45 through 48, we re, or 40, uh, yeah, through 48, we read the words of Jesus, right? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, the, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses to these things. Right, and again, in, in Acts 1.8, he tells the disciples again that they are witnesses. They are his witnesses. And then in Acts 13, verse 47, Paul identifies his own mission and ours with the servant of the Lord's mission. That would be the mission of Jesus. When he quotes Isaiah 49, 6, and he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the mission of God. That his people are on mission. Right? Not just that his people are looking for opportunities to be evangelistic and to share a evangelistic um, tract or something like that. That is 
part of it. But we are to be on mission, that everything that we do, that we live in a missional way. We live our lives on mission as disciples of Christ. We live on the mission that Jesus himself had and gave to us, his people. And so we live in this way. We, the way that we're friends, how we show hospitality, our understanding of vocation and work, that it's integral and not incidental to our Christian life, the way we work, the way we play, how we spend our time, how we parent, every aspect of our lives is to be lived with this mindset, that we are on mission. And that we're on mission together. Not just as individuals, but as God's people together, we are on this mission. And what's interesting, it's, it's, more, it's much more natural to be evangelistic if you're living missionally, right? Conversations about Jesus come up. You don't have to go digging and searching for them. Sometimes that's great to do. But if we are living on mission, conversations about Jesus become much more natural, much more engaging. You don't have to figure out a way to broach the subject. You don't have to ask intrusive questions that might easily cut off the conversation. The work of the Spirit is at work as we are on this mission together. Fifth is that we are reformed. Verse 6 there is one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One of the main aspects and understanding of the Reformation is that God is sovereign over all things. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All of life is under the sovereignty of God. This was one of the great themes of the Reformation. And we come from this tradition, tracing our theological heritage to John Calvin and Martin Luther, the great reformers of the church, and through both reformers and particularly Calvin, even go further back to St. Augustine. And in, that, in this tradition, we believe in these five solas, the five alones, the sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the standard Solia Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Solo Christo, by Christ's work alone we are saved. Sola Gratia, salvation by grace alone. Sola Fide, salvation by faith alone. And so with a Reformed understanding of Scripture, we see that in this Reformed understanding that our God is a covenantal God. We understand all of Scripture through that lens of that God is a God of covenant. This means we believe that God dealt with humanity in human history through his covenant. This covenant was manifest in creation and clearly stated and seen in God's covenant with Abraham. That through Abraham, God would call a people to himself, that he would be their God, and they, we, would be his people that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him, that all of the nations are included in this family that God is calling it to himself, that all the promises of God are true for God's people. And the implications of this are many. We are 
heirs, first and foremost, <laughs> of the promises of God through Christ. That all people in all times were and are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way people before Jesus or since Jesus have been saved. No other way that salvation comes except through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And hopefully that you're sitting here going, well, no, duh. You've been here hopefully long enough. But that is not a no, duh. <laughs> Even in the Christian church. And finally, we are Presbyterian. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul expands on what these gifts given to the church are for building up the body of Christ. He says to equip the, he says that, um, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so he's given gifts to the church for the building up of the body of Christ. And we believe that the Bible teaches that the head of the church is ultimately Jesus. He is the head pastor, so to speak. And under Jesus are his under shepherds, those that he has equipped, that they might equip people for the work of ministry. That he might equip the saints for the work of ministry. And those under shepherds that Jesus placed are called elders. And we get the word elder from the Greek word presbyteros. And so there's oversight. This oversight by elders is known as a Presbyterian form of government. The elders both teaching myself and Alex as pastors and ruling elders are the highest level of oversight in the local church which is tied to a presbytery, which is a group of churches that hold one another accountable and subject ourselves to each other and to the oversight of other elders. And then above the presbytery is the general assembly, and this is all the presbyteries together who meet yearly to discuss the vision and mission and oversight of the entire PCA. They might say, okay, that was a lot, John. Quickly, how do we apply this? So besides being a good ex explanation of who or what we are as a church, how do we apply this teaching? First, through Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and was raised from the dead, God is creating, has created, is continuing to create something entirely new. Not just a new life for individuals, a new life for his church, a new life for society. Paul sees an alienated humanity becoming reconciled a fractured humanity becoming united, even a new humanity being created it is a magnificent vision that Paul unfolds for us throughout his epistles. From there, we are called to seek unity with our fellow believers. There is much more that we can affirm with most Christians than what we, can, that we disagree on. We should seek to find ways that we can work together for the kingdom both individually and as churches. And yet, while we are called to seek unity, these are areas that define us, and they are important. 
They define how we believe God has called us to be his church. They give us a helpful ways to interpret and understand scripture. They're helpful in setting a vision and mission and direction for our church and our lives as individuals. So we will need to be careful not to get them too far out of order. We can embrace and study and grow by understanding more and more of what makes us who we are as believers and as corporately a church. And as guests come to be part of our church, we don't have to vet them to make sure they check all the boxes. Are they Reformed enough? Are they Presbyterian enough? Or Orthodox enough? Or missional enough? Or even Christian enough? We can welcome them, show them the love of Christ, and invite them to explore what we believe is a deep understanding of Scripture and a deep understanding of the church. And here's what I mean. We often think of the way that we keep purity of doctrine or practice The way we think about that is often we think of it as fences or walls, right? We make a well-defined barrier, make it clear where our our property ends and where another begins. But in his book, Deep Church, Jim Belcher gives us another option. And I think it is not only biblical but beautiful a well he gives us a picture of a well churches should be like wells in a hot and dry land in the outback of australia the ranches are so big that fences just don't make any sense so instead they drill a well And it's assumed that the livestock will not wander too far from the well because they know that is where the water is. Churches that Belcher calls center set churches should focus on the well at the center, Jesus Christ. It is this idea of Christ as our well, the center of all that we do, that we must be passionate and defend. This is where we are ultimately called to live as Christians, at the well, drinking the water of life. This is where we are called to be as a church, to lead people to the well, Those who are off in the dry and arid land to say, I know where the water is. Follow me. To lead them to the well, to show them the life-giving properties of the water, to show them there is depth to the well, that it will not run dry, that the water is cooler and sweeter the deeper you go. And they are welcome to come and to drink their fill, even if it's just from the very top, because even the top brings life, because all of Jesus is good, and he is our well. He is our center. He is where we come to find life. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for your church. And Lord, your church has many ways in which it expresses itself around the world, in this country, and countries around the world. And Lord, we thank you for the ways in which we have unity with brothers and sisters all around the world. And Lord, we also thank you for the ways in which we have differences that help us to worship, love, and serve you in particular ways as particular bodies of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you ultimately for the well of living water that flows from its streams of that living water. We pray, Lord, that we, your people, would drink deeply and bring others to drink deeply as well. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.